Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. These are some particular days for us, as, at least for me and for the life of our church, as we think about Focus 2020. If you uh, missed last week, one of the things I said was that this year, as we focus in, that we were going to spend some time really understanding and try to, to really understand our mission statement and to do that with some intentionality and some clarity. And, and certainly we want to make sure that we put emphasis on what God desires for us and what God wants to accomplish for his own will in the life of his church, because this is his church. And as we think about that, I want to just remind you this morning, if you missed last week and you may not know our mission statement, I just want to remind you that here's our mission statement, that we exist, First Baptist Church of Plains exists to love God, to love people, to share Christ, and to make disciples. You say, that sounds very familiar. Well, because if you read anything in the New Testament, you read in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus First of all, in Matthew 22, verse 37 and following gives us what we call the great commandment. That is, that we ought to love God and love people. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, as he's meeting with his disciples after his resurrection, he reminds them of the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, right? To baptize them and to teach them everything that he has taught them. And lo, he said he'd be with us always, even to the end of age. And, and that, the great commandment and the great commission has not been retired, they're still very much alive. It's still what we ought to be doing as a church. And it really speaks of us as First Baptist Church Love Plains, what we ought to be doing. And, and I said last week that one of the things I'm excited about is that some changes specifically have been taking place in my heart as I've been praying over these past few months, as I've been really being intentional with my own walk with Jesus and being intentional about praying about our church and thinking about the future of our church. I, I really am excited and I really believe that this year, as we focus in on God, as we focus in on the mission, that I really believe that God is going to use us in some great ways. I really believe that, church. And I believe that God has been speaking to my heart. God's been speaking to other people in our church. And there's some amazing things that are coming. And I'm excited about what God is going to do. It's, it's going to be incredible. But one of the things I really have been convinced of, and we started last week by talking in our focus series, we started talking about this chief end of man. What is, what is our all? When we think about our life on this planet, you know, our all, and, and Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he sort of summed up all of Ecclesiastes by saying that the chief end of man, everything that it boils down to as he looks at life, as he surveyed life, as he participated in life, it came down to this, fear God, Keep his commandments because you're accountable. I want you to think about that. And ultimately, he said that Paul picks up on that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Are you living for the glory of God? And that's one of the things that sort of sets my heart afire. Lord, what can I do to bring you glory in this world? And we're going to be talking about some of that. But I sort of left that message last week, if you can remember, and if you were here, I left that message last week with this question. Who 
is this God that we speak of? Who is he? Because here's the problem. The modern church has been infiltrated with a low view of God. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when we think of God, we do not think of God rightly. When we think of God, we think of God as we desire him to be. Can I just tell you that most of us never listen to the wealth, health, prosperity gospel that's being preached out there. But let me tell you, we're all influenced by it. Because we all want a God who is convenient. We all want a God who is serving us rather than us serving him. We have a low view of God. And there's nothing greater for us to do. There's no better way to start our year as a congregation in fellowship together as we worship together, is to correct this skewed view and get a right view of God. I I love what J.B. Phillips said. It's an older book. He wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in that, here's what he says. Linger unconsciously or lingering unconsciously in many minds and which prevent our catching a glimpse of a true God. He talks about how we have inadequate views of God, and they linger in our mind, and they keep us from really understanding who this real God is. He gives one example. He says, some people call God the grand old man upstairs. How many times have we heard that? Oh, the good old man upstairs. Let me tell you something. God is not the granddaddy sitting in the attic. He's not the sugar daddy that sits in the living room waiting for you to come. He's God. He's high and lifted up. And he is separated from us. He's not the old man upstairs. Get away from that mentality. That's not God at all. It's not who he is. I like reading after Tozer. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Boy, that's so true, isn't it? What you think about God this morning is what's most important about you. Because listen, what you think about God is going to shape your mind and your heart and your life. J.I. Packer, great theologian, says this. Knowing God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Listen to what he says now. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life is uh, life in it in excuse me and life in uh, all of its life I can't even read my own writing here and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God isn't that so true so what we want to do is what we want to do is the next four weeks is we sort of want to think about God this morning but here's what I want you to think about knowing God having a high view of God. As he has revealed himself through the pages of Scripture. I'm not going to pansy around. I'm not going to play games over the next few weeks to talk about what does Mike Foreman think of God. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about God. Because it doesn't matter what I think about God. What matters is what does God say about himself. And you know the glorious thing about it is God has given us a Bible. (laughs) And God has preserved this word over thousands of years, over 4,000 years. God has preserved the word for us in order that we would have a Bible that's accurate, 
The Bible that communicates to us. And this Bible, we're told, is the living, breathing Word of God. It's as if God was sitting in the, in the, on the platform today, speaking from the platform. When we read the words, it's as if God is reading them himself to us. And so I want you to see four truths this morning as we turn to Ecclesiastes, or excuse me, turn to, yeah, last week's sermon on the mind, Isaiah 6. Been a busy week. Isaiah 6. Let me just give you the backdrop. Before we read the text, let me give you the backdrop. King Uzziah was a king in Judah. If you know anything about Judah being the southern kingdom, that's where Jerusalem was. And if you know anything about King Uzziah, he came into power when he was 16 years of age. And Uzziah was really one of the good kings. You know, it's kind of interesting. You read through Kings and Chronicles and you find out all these wicked, bad kings in the Bible. But he was a good king. The the Bible says that he did what was right in the sight of God, in the sight of the Lord. He was really a good king. The only downfall that really Uzziah had was that he forgot that he needed to pull down all the high places. He didn't do that. But he did focus the country back in the right direction. If you know anything about Uzziah, he was very prosperous. In his years, his 52 years as king, the nation defeated the Philistines, pushed them back. He built up a fortified army, about 320 some thousand soldiers. He, he was very successful agriculturally. The, the, the agricultural industry in his time boomed. And, and they had bumper crops. It was, it was just exciting what God was doing through Uzziah in those days. And yet, as prosperous as he was, as great of a king as he was, at the end of his 52 years, he lost his kingdom. Because here's what happened to Uzziah. Uzziah got a little big for his britches. And Uzziah, Uzziah decided that he was going to worship God any way he wants to worship God. And the Bible says that what he did is he went into the temple and he went to the, to the, to the altar of incense and he was going to, to burn incense to God. God had already said, that's the priest's job. God had already set down the form of worship that needed to take place in the temple. And yet, Uzziah decided that he was big, rich enough that he could go in there as the king of Israel, a successful king, and that he was going to burn incense to God. He's confronted by Azariah the the priest and eight other men, eight other priests. The Bible says about these guys that they were mighty. (laughs) I mean, these were not guys that were wimpy preachers. These were guys who stood for truth and was bold. And, And they confronted Uzziah. And the Bible says that rather than humbling himself and repenting, here's what Uzziah did. He bowed up. The Bible says he got furious. He got angry. And the Bible says in that moment, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Forehead, Daniel. It's a joke. But anyway, so he was covered in leprosy. And Uzziah would spend the rest of his life in a separate palace in isolation until he dies. That's the backdrop. Now read the text. Listen to what the word of God says, beginning in Isaiah 6, beginning verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two he covered his face. Two they covered the feet. And with two they flew. And they cried. Holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Let's pray. Father, I realize this morning the great task that you placed in my heart. That, Father, we would, in this year, start off our time together getting a picture, a biblical understanding of who you really are. And God, I stand here this morning with fear and trepidation because, Lord, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to lead anybody to a low view or understanding of God. God, I realize the enormity of the responsibility this morning. Yet I also understand the great privilege that I have today to talk about this God who's incomprehensible. My God who yet high and lifted up came to me through his son Jesus Christ, found me, delivered me from the dominion of darkness by his suffering and death on a cross. And though he laid in the grave three days, he rose. In order that this morning I could stand righteous before you. And God, I desire nothing more but to know you. And for your people to know you today. God, I pray in all earnestness as I've been praying all week, don't let us leave here the same. I'm tired of the same. Do a work. Holy Spirit, take the word, apply it to our hearts that we may get a grand view of God. We depended upon you this morning, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah gets this grand view of a God who's awesome. And as we think about the text this morning, I want to just point your attention to four things. First of all, I want to point your attention to verse 1 and notice what... It says to us, in the year that King Uzziah died. That saying is critical in the understanding of the text because I want you to understand that when King Uzziah died, this great king who was very prosperous for the nation, this king who everybody loved, it would be like us saying that in the year 
that Kennedy was shot. It rang around the world, didn't it? It was a huge day. It was a day of mourning for our nation. Whether you like that president or don't like that president, it was a great mourning for the nation. <laughs> Isaiah is declaring to us that on the, the day, the time frame when Uzziah died and the whole nation's in mourning, and, and they're in this doubt, and they're beginning to wonder what is going to happen now. Not to mention, if you read already, up to this place, the Assyrians had already been rattling their sabers, ready to come and to attack the nation. Now one of the greatest leaders they've ever known is dead. But in the year that King Uzziah died, what does he say? I saw the Lord. I want you to write this down. God's, God is alive. Amen. He lives. Our God lives. Uzziah was dead. But God was alive. He was alive. Think about that. He was alive. How exciting is that? How wonderful is that? The, the nation is in crises. And yet, God's alive. I told you I've gotten into some new rap music here lately. And I listened to a new song yesterday that I was introduced to by someone sitting here. The song is called Jesus is Alive, but it applies to God. But listen to, listen to the lyrics of the second chorus. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant is, are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. But Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Hali uh, Solosi are dead. Elijah and Muhammad are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Here's how the psalmist said it in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth... He says, or even you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. You know what he's saying, right? He's saying that when all 7.8 billion of us who live on this planet currently, when we all die, he's alive. He's alive. God is alive. And that'll be good news. Isaiah got good news that day. Your king is dead, but your real king is alive. God's plan for the nation was always a theocracy. It was never a kingship. God wanted to be their king. God wanted to, to rule and to reign among them. And yet they said, we want a king. And it all went downhill from there. And now Uzziah, their great king, is dead and God gives him a vision and says, but I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. See, he is the God who is. Amen? He said to Moses, Moses came to him. And he had this interchange with him. And when he got down to the bottom, when God had called Moses to go to Egypt to represent 
and to lead the people out. When it got down to the very end of the task, of the brass tax, what did he say? Well, God, nobody's going to listen to me. Who should I say sent me? And he says, I am. I am. Folks, can I just tell you that the same God that spoke the world into existence lived from eternity past? We don't fathom that. We don't comprehend that. And listen, he will live through eternity present. Again, David, I don't understand that. I can't wrap my mind around that because I live in a time continuum. All that I can understand is 52 years. I really don't even understand 60 years yet. And yet, our God is alive. That was meant to encourage that prophet. Yeah, it's bad. It's horrible. But God's alive. I love the way Warren Wiersbe says it. Here's what he says. Listen to this. When the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. God's alive. God is alive. Secondly, write this down. Verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, here it is, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. As God opened up the window shades of heaven and allowed Isaiah to see in, what Isaiah saw was a majestic king sitting on a throne, not any throne, but a throne high and lifted up. Let me tell you something. The throne in Judah was vacant, but the throne in heaven was occupied. Why? Because here's number two. Our God reigns. Our God reigns reigns. When we think about that theologically, what does that mean theologically? I tried to avoid a lot of theological terms this morning, but you can't get away from this term as you think about God sitting on a throne, high and majestically lifted up, and, and, and we could talk about his majesty, and we will in a few moments, but I want you to think about as he's sitting on a throne, a king was not only the monarch, but the king was the one that everybody had to be in subject to. And I want you to see the term, listen to the term again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. There it is, the word Lord. Here's where we get our understanding of this verse. Here's where we get that he reigns. It is the word Adonai. The word Adonai means the sovereign. He's the sovereign one. And when we look at Isaiah and we hear this word, the Lord sitting on the throne, we understand that he is the sovereign king of the universe. Now what does sovereignty mean? (laughs) It means that he is subject to no one, but everything is subject to him. He is subject to no one, but everything is subject to him. You understand that, right? God is not subject to you. You don't conjure up praying. You don't even pray and fast to make God do what you want him to do. He is not obligated to us. He's obligated to himself. Amen? As we think about this sovereign rule, I I thought, Lord, where in the Bible do we really see a clear picture of of this, and I was reminded of my favorite story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is of a king 
who conquered the nation. And he took all the people with him into his nation of Babylon. And in chapter 3 of Daniel, what we find is that King Nebuchadnezzar is sort of uh, convinced by his, his compadres, his staff, to make this tower. And that when the music plays, that everybody's to bow down and worship this image. And, and, and they did that to really set up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and we find that as they, as they blow this trumpet, they build this, this great, humongous image of Nebuchadnezzar. And they blow the trumpet and they play the flute that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down. And so they're brought before the king. And you probably know the story, right? At the end of the story, they say to him, listen, whether you, uh, you know, or excuse me, whether God delivers us or not, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship another God. And they throw him in the midst of the fiery furnace so hot, by the way, that the people that threw him in, they burned up. <laughs> and then he says, he looks into the fire and he says, did we not throw three men in the fire? I see four. One looks like the son of God. We're not going to s- spend time there today. But he didn't, he didn't get transformation yet. In chapter four, he has a dream. And his dream that he has is about to become reality. And so he calls in Daniel, and Daniel interprets the dream. And Daniel says basically to him, you're too big for your britches. You need to understand who God really is. And so the Bible says that, that God lowered him. God stripped him of his royal authority, took him off the throne. And for seven years, he wandered in the fields like a beast of the field. And he ate grass, and his mind is scrambled. And the Bible said that he was going to do that until he acknowledged that God was sovereign. At the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his mind. He acknowledges who God is. And then when he gets back to the throne, he writes a decree. He writes a word to all the people. It's sort of his summation about what he experienced and what he knows. And I want you to listen to his words because I think they resonate very well when we begin to understand how majestic God is, but how much authority God has. In Daniel 4, 34 and 35, listen to what he says. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored him who lives forever. Here it is. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Here it is. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Can't question God. He's in control. He's in complete control. The world is his. We are his. Whether saved or lost, we are his. He can do with us whatever he desires. And we cannot say a word. Amen? I have sitting on this podium an iPad 6 that I bought a couple of years ago so I could preach from. I own it. It's not owned by a credit card or by a bank. I own it outright. And if I wanted to, I could take this iPad off this, pla- this podium and I could smash it against that brick wall 
And there ain't anything y'all can say about it because it's mine. God owns the world and everything in it. Listen, our God reigns. And again, we must remember, we don't have a God who serves us. We serve him. Write this down, number three. We find it in verse two. The Bible says, and and above it stood, that is above this throne where this majestic king sits. And we know he's majestic, by the way. Look at the train of his robe fills the temple. He said, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And I'm not going to spend any time there today because it's a mystery. Even if you read from the smartest of people, it's a mystery. And these angelic beings, we don't quite understand. I'll just tell you this, that we understand quite clearly what they're singing. We know exactly what they're saying. And, and I want you to sort of concentrate with that this morning uh, in verse 3. And, the, and they... One cried to another. It's antiphonal. They're singing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And they do this nonstop and they're in, the, they're in there worshiping our king. And, and notice what they cry out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. Write this down. Our God is holy. We have to understand what that means, though, because here's the idea. We, we know, we, we've been taught right through Sunday school, that holiness means separate, right? It means be separated out. And in the time that Israel used that, it was, it was to separate which, is, which has been consecrated to God to which is commonplace, right? What, what is common. And, and so, you know, it was used in those terms, but I want you to understand that when we begin to think about God being holy, there's three things I want you to write down that are so crucial for us to understand. Number one, I want you to write this down, that, that God is completely separated and independent from his creation. See, when we think about God being holy, it's not that, you know, yeah, God is holy, but. No, it's God is extremely holy and he is totally separated and independent of us. What that means is this, that he is definitely, number two, he is definitely unique in that he is like no other. I mean, we don't really understand all of the holiness of God, but we do know this, that in his uniqueness, it is who he is. That is, it is the essence of who God is. That is, it is, it is the makeup of who God is. God is holy. That is constantly, everything he says, everything that he does, he's holy because it's everything that he is. Does that make sense? So God is independently separated from us and we are totally separated from him. And then this truest form of the term is this, that we understand that in his separateness, that number three, he is absolutely pure. That is that number one, God is untainted by sin. There's not a sin that God has ever wrestled with. There's not a sin that ever touched him. God is untainted by sin. He's perfectly pure. Jesus summed it up well, didn't he? In the end of Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he was giving that, and he was, you know, talking about, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And he gets down to the very end and he says, God says, be holy for I am holy. 
untainted by sin. The second thing I want you to understand about that is, though, that the one who is untainted by sin does not tolerate sin. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. God cannot tolerate sin because he's pure. He's separated. He's unique. That's why Jesus had to come, right? There was no way that any living human being could ever attain to the standard that God would accept to be received. So Jesus would bear the wrath of God in his own flesh. He would die the death that we deserved. He would be separated from God like we deserved. And he would bear all that in his own flesh for us. And praise God, he rose on the third day in order that those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, brought into relationship because of the work of Christ. Because God is holy. Do we realize that this morning? Do we really truly understand? Do we declare with Hannah who declared in 1 Samuel 2.2 that no one is holy like the Lord? She goes on and says, For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. He is holy. And if God is holy, should that not change the way that we who are his children live. As we sort of come towards the end of the sermon, there's one other attribute, one other thing I want you to see about God this morning is found again in verse three. I want you to to see it there and I want you to see the response in verse four of the temple. But notice in verse three again, and one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can I just tell you, our God is glorious. He's glorious. Speaks of his majesty, right? It's interesting that when you begin to think about how to interpret the, the end of that verse, his, the earth is full of his glory. It's, it's interpreted two ways, mainly by theologians. One is to say that the earth is literally filled with this glory. And, and, and you know, we could read verses like Psalm 91, and, or excuse me, Psalm 19.1, and it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And we see that, right? We, we as God's people, when we go out and we look at the sky and, and we see, I was gone this week and I was in Richmond, Virginia at a, at a missions conference and, and, and we walked home at the end of the, the second night and it was finally clear outside. The clouds were gone. The moon was almost completely full. And it's like, you look at that and the people that were with me, we sort of look at that and go, God is glorious. I mean, just glorious. So the earth is filled with his glory, but, but we can also understand in the sense that, that God's glory will one day completely fill this earth. Amen? It, it's, it's yet and yet to come. And we rejoice in that. And in Israel, got to see some of that glory. Exodus 24, 17, Moses is going up on the mountain. And it says that, that the sight of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountain, on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. They got to see this gloriousness of God, how, how awesome and majestic that he is through the way he revealed himself coming down in the cloud in the fire and the lightning in the cloud. 
Folks, God is glorious. He's majestic. God is holy. God reigns. And God lives. (laughs) Should I stop there? Listen to the words of John chapter 12, verse 41. Because when we begin to think about the trace holiness of God, and we think about how theologians understand that, and as we understand it, as we look into the word of God, that our God is this perfectly holiness. It's a total separation. But you can't help but wonder when you begin to think about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Is it not a, a triune persons that we worship? There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Spirit. And they are in perfect union together. Have been in perfect union together from eternity past. Will be till eternity future. We don't understand that either. And I'm not here this morning to preach on the Trinity. Not that I totally could even do that this morning. Because I don't know that I understand it. But I want you to listen how John sort of interprets this text. Look over in John 14. And uh, it's not on the screen because I decided I wasn't going to do it. And then I decided this morning I would do it. And so I want to be very cautious in how I handle text, but listen to what John says, beginning verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, talking about Jesus, that the the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, the Lord who, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Speaking of Jesus, verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Let me just tell you, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Isaiah, as God lit, that, lit up the shades of heaven, got a view. And, and, and I said that, you know, when we get a right view of God, it does something to us, right? It changes us. If we really, this morning, go beyond, this is just a theological exercise. This is, this is not just a sermon this morning. This is God speaking to you. God is revealing himself through his word to you. You have to ask yourself, what should it do to me? Is it really something that I believe and absorb into my heart? Is it really something by faith that I received this morning? And if so, I can't help but think about the response of this man in verse 5. Because when we get a right view of God, we get a better view of ourselves. And notice when we get a right view of God, what Isaiah said, woe is me, for I'm undone. Can I tell you the reason why we got a low view of God today? Because too many of us walk around here thinking we're all that in a box of chocolates. Sometimes we walk around like we got it all together. Let me tell you something, you don't. You don't. We need to hear the words of Paul who said that he who thinks he's got it all together better take heed lest he fall. When I get a right view of God, my friends, listen, I find out how small I really am. And how dependent upon him I really am. 
I see all my wickedness and my sin because he is perfectly pure. He is uniquely separated from me. He is in a class all by himself. And I realize I'm definitely not in it. Isaiah said, if we get a pure picture of God, he said, woe is me for I am undone. You read Isaiah. Isaiah oftentimes confessed sin of the nation as he went through. Here he's not confessing the nation's sin. He's saying, I am undone. I have got a picture of who God is. And because of that, I tremble and I fear before God because I am undone. I am not like him. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And you know what he's referring to, right? People who say, people who say, the problem with the nation of Israel, here's the problem here. You want to sum up the problem of the nation of Israel throughout the scripture. Here's what the problem was. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I wonder, church, are there times that we come to worship on Sunday morning? Are there times that we listen to the sermon? Are there times that we get on our knees and try to pray? Do we give lip service unto God, but our hearts are far from us, far, far, far from him? I wonder if that's the case. I just have to tell you as a man, yes, I found myself there. Woe is me. I'm undone. Why? Listen to what he says. End of verse five. For my eyes have seen the king. Not Uzziah. He's dead. But God lives. Not Uzziah. He vacated his throne, but God's on his throne. Not Uzziah because he's dead, right? Sin. What's the way to sin? Death. But God's alive. He's holy and perfect. Holy and perfect. Full of glory and majesty. I've seen this king. The Lord, Adonai. Lord, Yahweh here of hosts. Folks, we cannot be the same when we get a right view of the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.